the obstacle to seeking care are, I don't think that any other cancer has uh, so many factors that prevent patients from seeking care than anal cancer. This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Syed Hussein, a James Associate Professor of Surgery and an expert in colorectal and anal cancers, and one of the leaders of the James Comprehensive Anal Cancer Screening Center. Anal cancer is today's topic. It's a it's a rare form of cancer, but the numbers are actually on the increase. And as Syed will explain, anal cancer is often a difficult type of cancer for people to talk about even with their primary care physicians. And that is why it is just so important for us to talk about it, to increase awareness, knowledge, to increase vaccinations and screenings and save lives. Welcome to the podcast, Syed. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always like to start off and learn a little bit about the James Docs I'm talking to. What Tell us a little about your background and what got you into medicine and oncology? Um, so I, I am a colorectal surgeon by training um, and I've been with, uh, with Ohio State University James Cancer Hospital for, for about 14 years now. Um, so um, starting out, you know, in my general surgery training, which was in New York, Harlem Hospital, I had the opportunity to work with um, with one of the leaders um, in colon rectal surgery, Dr. Doug Wong, uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, and that's really was that was my first kind of uh, introduction to colon rectal cancer, and that um, that is what incited my interest uh, in this field. Um, after finishing my general surgery training, I spent uh, a year uh, uh, specializing in colon rectal surgery uh, before joining here as a, as a, uh, a freshly minted uh, attending surgeon. And then, uh, um, you know, during my practice, um, I witnessed uh, some of the problems that we that I had already noticed during my residency training in Harlem Hospital. Uh, and those are, you know, really pertaining to how a patient's um, social background uh, impacts their, uh, the quality of care they receive um, and how it also ties into, and some of the things that we, a lot of times we don't want to talk about is, uh, is, the biases that physicians hold sometimes, you know, being human uh, against certain patient uh, types or certain types of patients or certain classification of patients. So, so what we, what I witnessed was there there a lot of patients who had, because of reasons that you just uh, mentioned, Steve, uh, because of the taboo associated with this, with this diagnosis, a lot of these patients were, uh, many physicians really uh, did not want to be, you know, did not want to take care of these patients, and they would refer those patients to us, uh, even for uh, something very simple, very minor, that could be easily taken care of uh, at their point of uh, referral. So, 
so that's something that became a pattern. And we once we saw that, you know, that a lot of these patients are being referred to us, not necessarily because, um, you know, the, uh, the referring physicians lack the ability to treat those patients, but perhaps, and again, I may be wrong, that's my interpretation, but perhaps because, uh, because they don't feel comfortable, they are either lack the training or there's some element of, uh, you know, intentional or unintentional bias. Uh, uh, that that is prompting those physicians to send those patients our way, and uh, and that's that's how I got kind of in, interested in this. Uh, uh, I felt that there we need to have some sort of um, a way to get the patients seen uh, in an effective and efficient manner. A lot of these are unintentional, uh, as I said, as you mentioned, it's, you know, implicit biases that are. Um, uh, that we don't even recognize, and, and they exist. Many of us are not trained. I know I was not trained uh, uh, to deal with uh, sensitive issues, especially when it per- pertains to anal cancer. Unfortunately, a lot of the patient population that we see who are who are afflicted by this this type of cancer are are particularly at risk because of their social backgrounds as well. So that puts them at another that adds another layer of uh, complexity to their care. So uh, so I think what we witnessed was a combination of all of those factors um, uh, that eventually prompted us here at James to start thinking about having a dedicated program that can provide pretty much every care, you know, the entire care in one, almost in a one-stop shop kind of a setting. Well, let's take a little step back before we talk about that. And because you started off as a colorectal surgeon and rectal cancer and anal cancer are a little bit different. So let's start with that. What's, what is the difference between those two types of cancer? So, so I, I mean, I just, I think I would, I should clarify that colorectal surgeons also treat anal cancer. So although it does not, the, the, the title does not truly uh, encompass the the anal part of it, but colorectal surgery that's that's a that's something that we do in, in, in as a routine. Uh, we see a lot of anal cancer patients uh, in our practice. Um, now, going back to your question in terms of the differences between the rectal cancer and anal cancer, these are these are two very different types of diseases. Uh, anal cancer is. Um, the cancer that involves the anus itself, that's the very, very end, almost the exit uh, of, the, of our gastrointestinal tract. Rectal cancer, on the other hand, involves the rectum, which is further in. This is the part of our intestine that we cannot see uh, without using you know, a, a, either in a, a speculum or a scope. Now, the types that the two cancers are also different types of cancer. Rectal cancer is what we call adenocarcinoma, and anal cancer in most cases is squamous cell carcinoma, which is more uh, close, you know, is more more closely related to skin cancers than the, than gastrointestinal cancers. So, so that's a very important distinction uh, that we have to keep in mind, bear in mind when we're treating these patients. And colorectal cancer is much more common than anal cancer, right? Yes, absolutely. Colorectal cancer is a lot more common 
than anal cancer. Uh, the difference, though, is that over the last, um, I would say maybe last two decades, with the uh, with widespread use of colonoscopy, we have really made huge strides uh, against colon and rectal cancer. And for that reason, because of colonoscopy, we have seen uh, a, a continual decrease in the number of case, new cases diagnosed with colon rectal cancer. Unfortunately, the opposite of that is true for anal cancer. So over the last 30 years, the incidence has actually doubled. So while the colon and rectal cancers are on decline, the anal cancer is on the rise. Uh, we'll get to this when we talk about screenings, but that I take it that means that the colonoscopy screening for colon and rectal cancer does not detect anal cancer. Uh, it can, but in many cases, it does not. Um, so uh, it has every, uh, unless the cancer is advanced, unless the anal cancer is advanced, a lot of times it can be easily missed with a colonoscopy, unlike colon and rectal cancer, where colonoscopy is extremely efficient in detecting even very early uh, lesions, very early tumors. Okay. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that this can be a difficult type of cancer for people to talk about. And I know from talking to you before that because of that, that leads to people getting diagnoses later at the later stages when it's more difficult to treat. So talk a little bit about that. Why is it hard for people to talk about and and how do you turn that around to, to help people? So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's one of the major uh, problems with, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a private area. Um, and then our societal taboos a lot of times um, prevent many patients from talking openly uh, about any issues in that area. Not even, I'm not just talking about cancer. I'm talking about any discomfort, any type of concerns. Patients are reluctant uh, unless they have a very you know, um, uh, a, a frank and cordial relationship with their with their physician. If uh, if, if there is a lack of confidence there, or if there is some hesitation between their their physician and and the patient, it's like unlikely that a patient would volunteer would bring this up uh, any type of symptoms in that area. Uh, and a lot of times it's because of societal issues, and a lot of times it's also because of the fact that the symptoms produced by anal cancer are are very nonspecific, so so they can a lot of they can be easily dismissed as hemorrhoidal symptoms, and the combination of these two factors leads to patients presenting to us with very advanced disease, uh, and it's not uncommon for us to see patients where they have let it go for months and years. Uh, either because of reluctance to speak with their physicians or because they just dismiss those symptoms as, as, you know, as hemorrhoidal disease. So when that happens and the, the disease is advanced far, farther, it's more serious, what does that mean? Is it, it, it's, it, it's not still localized to the anus, or is it, or does it metastasize and go somewhere else, or both? Both. So a lot of times what we see is, a very large tumor, which makes it impossible for us to 
to do organ preservation. And by that, I mean that that almost forces our hand to to remove the anus and the rectum completely, um, which, of course, is a radical operation. And uh, and then there are often occasions where patients come in where the disease has already left the anal area and it's in metastasized to other parts of the body. So, so we see a combination of both um, uh, locally advanced disease as well as metastatic disease just because of delay in seeking treatment. Wow, this sounds like what it was like maybe even before you practiced with colorectal cancer where before there was colonoscopies, people would put off things and, and so many more colon rectal cancers were in the later stages and was so hard to treat and the death rate was so much higher, but now you're catching them early. So now we got to get to the same place with anal cancer where you catch them early and can save lives. Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, that, that's, that's a perfect analogy. I think we're following the same path. Um, just like with colon cancer, I think the initial struggle was just awareness within the medical community that this is something that we can truly prevent, and then uh, making you know the general population aware and, and let it, letting them know how important it is for them to get the colonoscopy, to get the screening, and now we are bearing you know we are now seeing the fruits of that, uh, and I and that's a, that's a great blueprint for us uh, uh, to to decrease the the incidence of anal cancer. So uh, it starts with again awareness on both on physician and patient uh, part, and then with uh, very specific guided screening uh, interventions that can catch, that can detect and eradicate tumors before they have had a chance to, to advance to a, almost an incurable state. But first, before we get to, to, some, to some screening, what that is, let's talk a little bit about risk factors and also the fact that there's a, a vaccine that can prevent this. So, yeah. So I think I'll, I'll talk about the vaccine first. So I think vaccine is, that's huge. Although we don't have data yet, solid data that supports um, uh, or that, that, that proves beyond doubt that vaccine will decrease the risk of anal cancer. But personally, I feel that that's going to happen. Uh, anal cancer, um, almost 90% of anal cancers are caused by HPV infection, uh, infection with a certain type of you know, high-risk HPV viruses. So the fact that the vaccine is so effective against HPV virus, and we're already seeing a decline in cervical cancer because of that, I'm very confident in saying that we will see similar results uh, coming down the road for anal cancer as well. So, so that, that has been a very, very encouraging uh, development over the last uh, 10 years or so where we have this vaccine now available. Uh, one of the problems is that, you know, it's, again, there's just because of the societal taboos, uh, and, and that's perhaps for another time, uh, there is, you know, some reluctance to HPV vaccination from parents. Um, so, uh, so I think that's going to be, that's going to remain a challenge. Now, going back to your, the other part of your question, um, there are risk factors for this cancer. As I mentioned, number one risk factor is HPV virus. 
certain types of HPV virus, which are considered high-risk HPV virus, almost all cancers are related to those. And then when, um, and this is, you know, HPV is something that it's considered a sexually transmitted uh, infection. So in most cases, the transmission is uh, during sexual intercourse. Uh, it is very common in, in within our community. Uh, according to some estimates, uh, 70% of uh, as soon as you know we be, we, uh, we become sexually active are exposed to this virus. So it is out there. It is almost ubiquitous in in our community. Um, the other risk factors. So so viral infection is number one. The other risk factors are anything that any condition that fights your ability to ward off that virus and viral infection or to clear that viral infection once you're exposed uh, to the virus. And those conditions include any type of immunosuppressing uh, illness. Now, that could be HIV, which is the most common one that we see. That could also be, um, uh, you know, acquired immunodeficiency, um, uh, other, you know, some other medical conditions. And on top of that, some of the patients who take um, medications to, to suppress their immunity are transplant population, patients who have other conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, patients who have uh, autoimmune conditions. All of those patients are at high risk because they uh, high risk for, or I shouldn't say high risk, but their ability to ward off the virus is diminished. Um, and then the last group, the big group and that we see uh, the virus in a lot of patients are, are women who have infection in the, uh, in the either vaginal or cervical area, HPV infection. They're very likely, just because of the proximity of anus to that area, they're very likely to harbor HPV uh, in, in the anal area as well. So these are the three, you know, big kind of categories that we consider as uh, as high risk. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, Syed, we're going to talk about uh, some symptoms and the all important screening and some treatment options. In today's world, misinformation abounds, but at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Syed Hussein, and we're talking about anal cancer. And Syed, fill us in. What are some of the symptoms? And I have a feeling that they may not be as obvious, or they may be similar to hemorrhoids, and that's part of the problem. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face. Uh, you know, patients. Um, is a lot of times, you know, the symptoms, the most common symptoms that we see with anal cancer are really anal discomfort, bleeding, or feeling a lump in the anal area. And these three symptoms are really identical 
to uh, symptoms when, you know, a, a hemorrhoidal disease produces. And just because hemorrhoid, hemorrhoids are such a common condition, many patients just think that that's what's going on. And a lot of times, you know, even physicians, a lot of times, uh, you know, patients bring these symptoms up to their physicians and we think that, oh, you know, it's likely to be hemorrhoids, which is true. Most of the times when patients come in with those symptoms, it's hemorrhoids. But uh, uh, what I tell my patients to you is that, you know, if your symptoms are lasting for more than two weeks, you should definitely get seen. Uh, most hemorrhoidal symptoms are, are transient. Uh, they last for a few days, go away. Uh, but if symptoms persist for more than two weeks, it's time to get a checkup. Okay. So if they do persist or if there's, there's some issues, this is where screening comes in. So we, we know a little bit about colonoscopy. So how is screening for anal cancer different? What is it? So anal cancer screening is uh, very similar to, uh, to what we do for cervical cancer sc- screening. So because it's, you know, it's a similar kind of disease process, um, it's caused by the same kind of virus. Um, so we start out with you know, just simple physical exam, which would, require, which would be you know, like a rectal exam in the office and, uh, and something that we call an anal pap smear. So anal pap smear is... Um, it's very similar, the, you know, the way we obtain it, the way we uh, kind of test it is very similar to the better known cervical pap smear. So, so that's usually the initial step in screening. We recommend that the high-risk patient populations, patients who have, you know, who are either HIV positive, patients who have history of uh, vaginal vulvar or cervical HPV infection, patients who are considered otherwise high risk, you know, LGBTQIA community, they should get this done at least once a year. And then if the pap smear is abnormal, then we, then we escalate that to the next level, uh, which is high-resolution anoscopy, which is really um, looking at the anal area using some special chemicals to highlight abnormal cells, and then doing a very magnified exam uh, using uh, you know special equipment to help magnification and and identifying at almost at the cellular level uh, the abnormal cells uh, taking samples and eradicating that so that's really that's that's what high resolution endoscopy and can pass uh, and at this at the, at the present time that's the only effective way of screening so these cells that you'll detect are cancer cells at this point right no, so that's that's you know that's that I'm I'm glad that you brought this up. I should have been more um, more specific about that. We have the ability to detect precancerous cells. So these tests that we're talking about, of course, we will. If there's cancer, we will absolutely see it. But uh, I, I think one of the the uh, the strengths of this screening program lies in the fact that we can detect just like colonoscopy can detect precancerous cells in the colon, uh, the test that we're talking about, the anal pap smear or high-resolution endoscopy, can actually detect precancerous cells in the anal area, and we then have the ability to intervene to, uh, to eradicate those cells before they ever have an opportunity to turn into cancer. 
so I think that that's really the 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 the, the most powerful aspect of the screening program. Okay, now I get it. Now I understand why people at high risk should get the test once a year because they're, if they're at high risk, their odds of getting it are so much higher. So let's catch it when it's precancerous, get it rid of it, boom. Okay. Yes. No. I think there's a, a recent trial. We just, you know, it was a, a national multi-center trial that just ended, and uh, um, and it it showed that uh, high-resolution endoscopy programs, anal cancer screening programs, are extremely effective. Almost 70% eradication of anal cancer in high-risk populations if they were screened properly. So it is it's a very effective way of preventing this uh, this cancer. So as you did mention. Unfortunately, not enough people do get these screenings and you do see some advanced cases. So surgery, that's your specialty. That's certainly one of, if not the first line of treatment. What what are basically the surgery and what are the other treatments that go with that? For patients who have already developed anal cancer, if it is at a very early stage, um, a minor operation can cure uh, the patient. Unfortunately, most patients that we see are beyond that stage where the tumor has already grown to a size, say, more than an inch almost. Um, and once that crosses that, uh, that you know, two centimeter mark, it becomes very difficult for us to just do a small, simple operation and scoop the tumor cells out. In that situation, the, idea, the, the first line treatment is chemotherapy and radiation. So we give them a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, which is fortunately, which is very effective uh, uh, in eradicating cancer cells. Um, and then there is a subset of patients, about 90% of the patients are cured with chemotherapy and radiation. About 10% of the patients either have, you know, either their tumors don't respond to chemotherapy and radiation or they have a recurrence of cancer um, after cure. And that segment, that subset of patients requires a radical operation, which, you know, which involves removing the rectum and the anus and having to wear a permanent colostomy bag. So that, as you can, you know, as a, it, it's a fairly life-changing operation, and it's a, it's a pretty aggressive operation. Um, but, you know, again, going back to if we can see these cells in a precancerous stage, uh, if you can identify it then and eradicate it, we don't have to worry about anything that follows downstream. Boy, I think that this goes back to what you said about how patients put this off for months or a year or more. And if you have a growth that large in your anus, you would think, I would think, I'm sure you would think, I got to see my doctor. But so many millions of people don't. They either that may not even have a doctor to go to or can't afford insurance. And there's just so many obstacles to getting them to you, basically. Yeah, no, I think there's uh, uh, one of the, and that's, you know, what you bring up is the obstacle. I think that's the obstacle to uh, to getting to, to seeking care are, I, I don't think that any other cancer has, uh, so many factors that prevent patients from seeking care than anal cancer. You know, you know, as we talked about earlier, the societal taboos where patients just don't want to talk about that. Uh, that uh, those taboos affect physicians too. We a lot of times we're not comfortable talking about 
anal area or vaginal area with the patients because, you know, it's just we don't feel comfortable. We're not specifically trained to have those conversations. At least, you know, um, um, as I said, at least I wasn't. Um, and then on top of that, um, a lot of patients who do develop this cancer have uh, um, disadvantages to begin with. They are what who we consider uh, at-risk population. So, so they are they already have HIV, or they have you know other socioeconomic constraints that prevent them uh, or make it impossible for them to seek medical care. So, for that reason, that's you know it's extremely important to have, and we've we've been. Uh, you know, our one of our hopes is to incorporate um, a component of uh, uh, of some degree of socioeconomic support for our patients. So, so not only it's easier for them to come to our to their appointments, but also it's easier for them to follow through with the treatment that we recommend. So, so James has uh, you know a lot of those programs already set. We are hoping to incorporate some of them. And then start a few ones, a few new ones, uh, in our anal cancer screening programs as well. Yeah, that's true. The James is good at reaching out to underserved populations. So, let's add this to the list. So, and and that kind of brings me to the the anal cancer screening center, which you sort of earlier referred to as sort of an all in one shop, which is a great way to describe it. And it's very rare because this is a rare type of cancer. There are not too many specialists like you in the country who see enough cases to know to become experts. So fill us in a little on the, the anal cancer screening center and why it's such an important facility for people in central Ohio and, and the whole state. Yeah. So, so, I, uh, you know, to start off, we are the only such program in the entire state of Ohio. So there's really no very few uh, I, I personally know of, you know, six dedicated centers that are doing this, uh, this type of screening that on, on, uh, so we, you know, a lot of centers provide fragmented care. That's what we did, uh, before we had, you know, we, we started our own program. So these services are available, um, in a fragmented manner, uh, across the country, but the comprehensive screening programs, there are only six that I am aware of. And there are none uh, such program in the entire state of Ohio. What we, uh, when when we were planning this, one of the things that we kept uh, front and center was was our patients, and you know, having the awareness that many of our patients have uh, um, uh, may have uh, social constraints that may prevent them from making multiple trips, uh, we felt that it was uh, imperative. For us to have a uh, a program that where the patient does not have to keep coming back in for visits after visits, so what we have done and and it required a lot of deliberate effort from from our group, from you know my partners, the other colorectal surgeons within our group, to come up with a protocol that and that can so once the patient comes in, we do an exam, we uh, you know uh, do a thorough history. But at the same time, we do the screening, detection, and eradication of uh, of precancerous cells if if they are discovered. So when if a patient comes in and once they step in through our doors, they will leave after uh, uh, getting a thorough 
screening and treatment within that visit, uh, rather than having to come in for one visit for registration and then another visit for screening and then another visit for uh, for eradication of abnormal cells, we have really put them all together, packaged it into one visit, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm personally, I, I think that's that's one of the major advantages of having a comprehensive program like this. Yeah, because having to do multiple visits from someone who lives two, three hours away and might not have the resources, there's a, there's a hurdle to prevent them if you're taking, you're removing those obstacles. And also it comes to my mind, you're, because when you talk about high-risk people need to do this once a year, that makes it so much easier. It's a once a year, literally, it's one day and not spread out over three months once a year. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, that's imperative. I think that's, uh, um, yeah, and that, you know, we've had very good feedback from our patients. Our patients love the fact that they don't have to, it's not going to be one appointment for scheduling a procedure and then another one and then a third one just one appointment, they get all the answers they need, uh, all of their questions are answered. And then at the end of the day, when they're leaving, they know that, you know, if there was anything abnormal, it's been taken care of. So that that does really provide a lot of, uh, you know, a, 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 a higher degree of uh, satisfaction within our patient population. Yeah. And so if Everyone does this, if every high-risk person and everyone gets the HPV vaccine and all these things are detected really early, you may, a couple of years from now, you may never have to do surgery again. That would be awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. what we want to do. Uh, you know, we are hoping that that's going to yeah. happen. I think if the way things are, if everybody gets their vaccine and high-risk population gets the recommended screening, uh, there's, I see no reason why we cannot eradicate this cancer. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for filling us in on, boy, this was like everything you need to know about anal cancer. And, and it's like I said at the beginning, and if you've reiterated, it's really important to know this because, and talk about this, prevent it, screen it, vaccinate it, and, and save lives. You're welcome. It was, it was great chatting with you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur D. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.